I've been able to get through six chapters of the book of Isaiah, and there's a little relief in sight. The first six chapters essentially have to do with the problems within Israel and Judah, all of Israel in fact, and certainly in all the church. The problems are the same, whether it be physical Israel or whether it be the church. Uh, you can read either one through there and see very clearly why God is angry with both the nation and why he is angry with the church today. Uh, we expounded some upon those sins, and I want to leave it at that because we have a different section beginning in chapter 7. Uh, the first six chapters deal with the sins and problems and why God was angry, and then chapter 7 begins more with what God is going to do about it and what the situation is and whether or not as a result of the sins of Israel and the sins of the church, the church is going to be completely destroyed and the nations of Israel completely destroyed and forgotten, or if God is going to have mercy and compassion at some point on both, and do something about it. It's a very interesting chapter, or a very interesting section, which really goes from chapter 7 through 12. So let's get started here and see how far we get this, this afternoon. Chapter 7 of Isaiah. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So here you have the ten northern tribes uh, in an alliance with Syria, a Gentile nation to the east, who combined their forces to go against Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem. Now Uzziah, uh, Uzziah or it, it comes down to Ahaz, in the days of Ahaz, excuse me, uh, a word about Ahaz. He was a very pagan king who followed Baal, who set up groves and altars and all kinds of pagan religious uh, opportunities for the people and pushed them in that way. He was so evil that he even sent his own children through the fire, that is, human sacrifices, to the god Moloch. That's how bad it had gotten by this point in Israel and Judah's history. I think that our American nation today has gone almost that far, or perhaps in principle has gone as far or further than that. We do not do it in the name of a pagan god today necessarily, but the medical association does have pagan symbols, and much of what they practice has come out of Babylon and they sacrifice millions and millions of American babies every year, human sacrifices, not to some god necessarily, but really isn't it a god? Isn't it to the god of self and selfishness? Isn't it to the god of, I don't want a child, I don't want to take care of a child, I did what was necessary in order to begin to produce a child, that was fun, but I don't want to deal with the rest of it. So maybe this is not too far afield. 
Maybe it isn't exactly same, the same, but still in all, we have millions who are being sacrificed to whatever God or whatever desire or whatever selfishness, which is idolatry, the American people desire. At any rate, there were those who would destroy Ahaz and Judah, and it was told the house of David, that is, the king of Judah, who was Ahaz, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, and his heart was moved, and the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. I suppose we've all been in a forest, and the wind was blowing, and all the trees were rocking at once, and the whole forest was moving back and forth. Uh, this is very descriptive language showing how fearful Ahaz was when he heard this. He was like a tree shaken in the wind, and in fact, he was like a whole forest shaken in the wind. Then said the Eternal to Isaiah, who was a prophet, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son. Now, Shear Jashub in the Hebrew meant, The remnant shall return. I think it's interesting that God sent that son with Isaiah, because before we're through with these prophecies, we're going to see that Judah was going to be taken captive, and ultimately even uh, the rest of Israel taken captive. But God sent Isaiah's son, whose name was, the remnant shall return, as evidence that God would not allow them to be completely wiped out. I think we can take that as an assurance from God, especially in the light of other scriptures, that God is going to cause a return of 10%. And in fact, at the end of chapter 6, which is the end of that indictment of six chapters against the sins of Israel then and the sins of Israel today and the church today, that God is going to cause a tithe to return, 10%. So even though God was going to pronounce a pretty heavy prophecy here, there would be a remnant to return. So he says, take this son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool and the highway of the fuller's field. It may be that Ahaz had gone there because that was the water source and he was trying to figure out a way to keep the Syrians and the Ephraimites or the tribes of Israel from having water while they laid siege to the city. That's a supposition of some of the commentators. Anyway, he says, say to him, take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and of the son of Remaliah, that is, Pekah, king of Israel. Uh, this was a sign of contempt when you didn't use the man's name. You didn't call him Pekah because you did not respect him. You called him the son of Remaliah. Didn't even want to mention his name. That was customary among the peoples of those days. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the sons of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against you. So don't worry. These are just like two brands that were lit, and they're just the smoking remnants, because I will deal with them, God says. You will not be totally destroyed. Now, why would God say this to a, Judea, a king of Judah who was an evil, pagan follower of Baal? Kind of interesting, isn't it? God intends to save Israel in spite of herself. God intends to save the church in spite of itself. 
No matter how pagan we are as a nation, no, no matter how pagan the church has become under the Takachas and is slowly drifting back to the world even in many of the splinter groups that came off, spiritual Judah is in terrible shape as is physical Judah and Israel. But God speaks some comforting words to us, doesn't he? He did at the end of chapter 6. He said, I will save a remnant. And in saying that, what does that give? It gives us opportunity to be part of that remnant if we see, hear, heed, or understand and heed. It gives us opportunity. It gave even Ahaz opportunity to repent. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are or have been. God gives ample opportunity and space for repentance. He's very patient. So he said, don't worry about this confederacy that is coming against you. Who say, verse 6, let us go up against Judah and vex it and let us make a breach therein for us. Let us tear her down, in other words. And set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. Nothing is known of Tabiel. I looked it up. Uh, who it was, uh, I guess is unimportant because they said it's not going to happen. So he didn't use someone that we might know who was. Thus says the eternal God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. They will not take you over. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin the king. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And within sixty-five years of this prophecy having taken place, Ephraim had gone into captivity. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. They were together in an alliance, so it seemed like they were one. When you're allied together, uh, you don't, that, that's the way you do it. We, today we would just call it the coalition, it covers it all. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Or, as my margin says, if you do not believe it, it is because you are not stable. Now, I submit to you, and I think that we shall see this very shortly, that even though this was a specific prophecy given to King Ahaz, and had to do somewhat with his reign and those reigns which would immediately follow, this is a prophecy that spans thousands of years. It spans until and through today. And we'll see that as we go on. So we're not just reading ancient history here. Uh, perk your ears up because this has to do with today. We'll see that in just a moment. So let's be stable. Let's be strong. Let's understand and let's believe. What God says, there will be a remnant preserved. God will not utterly destroy the church, nor will he utterly destroy Judah and Israel. Moreover, the Eternal spoke again to Ahaz, saying, verse 11, Ask you a sign of the Eternal your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Isaiah said, Ask any sign of God you want. You devise it, you figure it out, so that whatever you demand is a sign, God will do, not something that God does that you might not believe, but create a sign for yourself. 
and see if God does it to show that this is so. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the eternal. Now that is an interesting statement, because this was a pagan king who did not believe in God. Some of the people of Israel, however, still did. And he wanted to give lip service to God, but he didn't care anything about a sign for God. He didn't believe in God anyway. He believed in Moloch, and he believed in other pagan Babylonian gods. So why would the sign from God, whoever that was, mean anything to him? So he gave lip service to him. He said, oh, I won't tempt him. But he already had, as we shall see, an alliance with the Assyrian. And since he was allied with the Assyrian, he thought the Assyrian would protect him, and therefore he would have no problem. Is there some time in the future that Israel will go to the Assyrian for help? The Assyrian who has come against us before, but we will run to for help in a time of need. Prophecy has a way of repeating itself over and over, and certainly all these prophecies and what happened have an end-time fulfillment. Continuing with Ahaz in verse 13, And he said, Hear you now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Why should I bother God? He's making an excuse for not looking to God, and we'll see that this is borne out. He did not look to God thereafter. He looked to the Assyrian. Now, the commentaries will tell you that this prophecy, which spans from Isaiah 7 through chapter 9, about verse 7, I think it is, is the most difficult prophecy in the Bible, or the most difficult passage in the Bible, for that matter, to understand. I question that statement. It's not been sealed. Daniel had been sealed. I think that makes it even harder to understand. But be that as it may, they had a great deal of difficulty interpreting this. And here's the reason. Since you refuse to ask for a sign, God says through Isaiah, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. You're going to get a sign whether you want it or not. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, that is, while he's very, very young, the land that you abhor shall be forsaken of both her kings. Now, if this was assigned to Ahaz, it had to be something I would think that he could recognize. But at the same time, this is a very clear prophecy of the, re of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, the commentators think that perhaps Isaiah's wife had died, and he was about to marry a young lady, and that they would have a child, and that before, that child could know the difference between good and evil, that is, approximately three years of age, as they figured it, that this prophecy would come to pass. Now, that may or may not be true. Uh, but to me, it shows, and is internal evidence, that this prophecy, whatever it might mean in the end time, certainly does 
proceed forward to at least the birth of Christ at this point. And we'll see that it extends even further than that as we go on through these chapters. So this is a prophecy for the future. It's not something was just that was just then for Israel at that time. And of course, Christ was born of a virgin and was named God with us. That record is in Matthew 1, verses 22 through 23. So Matthew shows that that prophecy indeed did extend all the way forward, that it wasn't just something back here. The Lord shall bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house days that have not come. You're going to have something happen that has never happened before to Israel. From the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, so from the time that Ephraim and Judah split and became separate tribes, it had its roots all the way back there. Even the king of Assyria, and it shall come to pass in that day that the eternal shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt. Now, there was a, a certain fly in those days which had a very wicked bite and caused great pus pockets to form on animals. And they were so awful and rotted the flesh so badly that they could kill camels and possibly even elephants and hippopotami. That's the plural. Very wicked bite. Very wicked result. So God is saying something very evil, very rotting and death-threatening would come upon you. And for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. Now, flies and bees were often used as a symbol of armies because they can come in great clouds, great vast numbers, and they can attack and kill anything that is before them. Uh, there are people, many people over the years who have been attacked by a swarm of wasps or a swarm of bees, even honeybees, and been killed by them, especially if they're allergic. But you must feel like you're in the middle of a great battle when you're attacked. I, I remember one time I was attacked by a bunch of wasps. I was, uh, I was a kid, and, and there was a great stack of limbs there that we'd trim the trees up with on my grandfather's ranch. And I had chased a rabbit in there. And in my youth and eagerness, I thought if I would jump on those limbs, that rabbit would probably come out. He didn't, but the wasps under the limbs did. And they bit me about the head and ears and mouth and lips so badly that my ears were swollen like cauliflowers and my lips flapped up and forth like I'd have one of those collagen inserts, only worse. I felt like I was in the middle of a severe attack. Well, that's the way we're going to feel. And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon all the thorns and even the... Uh, as my margin says, commendable trees or bushes, those that are good. In other words, they're going to cover the land. They're going to cover from the desolate valleys and the caves of the rocks all the way through to the, the, the plants that you have planted that bear fruit. Everywhere they will come. In the same day shall the eternal shave with a razor that is hired, namely, uh, did, did uh, Britain not hire the Hessians? 
when they came over to fight the Revolutionary War, German soldiers that they just hired by the month to come and fight us. They felt they needed help, so they just hired warriors. He changes the analogy. First of all, he calls it bees and flies. Now he changes it to a razor that's going to shave all the hair off. That was a disgrace in those days. When David's men had their beards shaved, they went and hid until their beards grew back. It was a disgrace to have your bare face shown. You were included as a woman and laughed at and jeered if you had a hairless face. Is that something that we should reinstitute? <laughs> no, we'll just be men in spite of it. In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired, namely by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. He said, they're going to shave you from head to foot. All the hair off your legs, all the hair off your feet, and on the ends of your toes. That's how cleanly Israel is going to be shaved or disgraced, put to shame. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. That is a sign of great poverty. When you had great flocks and herds, you were a wealthy man. But if you only had one heifer and two sheep, you were a very poor man. So this is a sign of great poverty to come. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give. He shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. Now that doesn't sound too bad on the surface when you consider that God told Israel he would take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, there's a difference between one heifer and two lambs in a land flowing with milk and honey. For a land to flow with milk and honey, you have to have vast herds of cattle. Here it's reduced to that. And what he's saying here is that butter from the milk of one cow and any honey you might find in the beehives that are wild among the rocks is all you're going to have to eat. Great famine on the land. The context shows that even before we reach that verse and now after that verse. And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings, it shall even be for briars and thorns. Everything that was planted, all your fields, your vineyards, everything that you had had in your agricultural program will be gone, and nothing but briars and thorns left. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, that is, uh, agriculturally worked, there shall not come there the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. In other words, your agricultural system will be destroyed, and it will just be whatever pasture is left that cattle and sheep and goats will have to eat. Imagine our Midwest, all the corn and wheat and grains that are grown, and how it will be totally devastated. And the only thing left would be that just which springs of itself that a few cattle and sheep might eat after the famine and the war and everything that occurs. So, even though, he says, this conspiracy of Syria and Israel against the Jews will not come to pass, I am going to send the Assyria. 
and he is going to wipe you out. Although, a remnant will remain. Shear Jashub. I wonder if somewhere in the end time here, we're going to see some of the Arabs form an alliance with Israel, Ephraim, Manasseh, and try to destroy Judah. That's what this plot was. And it certainly is brought forward to the end, as we shall see. Might be something we could sort of put in the back of our mind and sort of watch for that type of thing. Moreover, the Eternal said to me, Take you a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. There's your name for your next kid. A great roll doesn't mean anything with cinnamon in it. Uh, that's the only roll we understand today, perhaps. Uh, back then they wrote on these scrolls. It could be unfolded. Uh, that's what a roll meant. Meher Shalal Hashbaz means make haste to the spoil. In other words, the spoiling will come quickly. And I took to me faithful witnesses to record Uriah the, to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, Call his name the prey, or, or make haste to the prey, or spoil. That was the name of the son. Names had to mean something. And this was a prophecy that the spoil and the prey would come fast. For before the child shall, shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, all right, it takes, Isaiah immediately went into the prophetess and had to take at least nine months for the child to be conceived and born. And then, what the age do they start saying, dad and mama? Seven, eight months? I don't remember. Uh, not, not very, you know, several months before they get to that point. So this, was, this prophecy would come down very quickly. And the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So everything that the northern ten tribes had amassed in their wars, the Assyrian would come and get. And the Lord's, look at us today and all the treasures that we have amassed from around the world and produced ourselves. It's all going to be taken away very suddenly. The Eternal spoke also to me again, saying, For as much as this people refuse the waters of Shiloh that go softly, and rejoice in Rezin and Remaliah's son, now therefore, behold, the Eternal brings up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. Now he uses Shiloh here, because the pool of Shiloh was a very quiet pool. It was used in the New Testament with, remember, the man who was crippled who sat beside it. Very soft waters. God and his kingdom under David was a peaceful time. And the kingdom that is about to come is also going to be a very peaceful kingdom because it is going to be governed by great leaders, that is Jesus Christ and you and me, 144,000 of us all together. The peace will be maintained. We said instead of looking to God who will have a peaceful reign with quiet waters that flow softly, 
The pool of Siloam was just a pool, but at one point it was a spring as well that flowed very softly down. Instead of looking to God, who has everything under control and can take care of things himself in a peaceful manner as needed, you look to the Assyrian, who is represented by the river Euphrates. When it talks about the river in these prophecies, it generally means the Euphrates. And the Assyrian was to the north and the east at the river Euphrates. And it was the waters of the river strong and many, many waves, many currents, they thought, wow, the king of Assyria is strong. There's power there. We'll look there. We won't look to God, the waters of Shiloh. And he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. The Euphrates was known to flood in the spring. And when the Assyrian comes out, it's going to be like the flood of a mighty river. And he shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over like he overflows his banks, he shall reach even to the neck. That's getting right up next to the head, isn't it? That's about the point you drown. It gets up to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So he's speaking of the people of God, whose God should be God with us, Emmanuel. But they're looking to the Assyrian in an alliance and that Assyrian is going to turn on them. And that's indeed what happened back here uh, in ancient history. That Syrian uh, and Israelite alliance against Judah was destroyed by the Assyrian. And then Judah was destroyed by the Assyrian. So yes, the Assyrian came and took care of Judah's uh, enemies, but then it destroyed Judah as well. All right, so it shows the Assyrian coming and flowing over Judah, and he shall pass through Judah, and his wings shall fill the breadth of the land. He uses a little different analogy here, not a river anymore, but like a great bird whose wings cover the whole land. In other words, utter desolation. All right, now God throws out a challenge. Change of subject here a little bit. Associate yourselves, O you peoples, and you shall be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you of far countries. God makes an announcement. He wants to be heard far and wide. He wants all the peoples of the world, all the nations, to hear this challenge. Give ear, all you far countries. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. Prepare yourselves for war, in other words. Gird your loins that before you could run and fight, you had to get your skirts picked up and, and wrapped around your waist so that you had free movement. So he's telling them, get yourselves ready to fight. You're going to be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves and be broken. Take counsel together, and it shall come to nothing. You can do all the talking and planning and preparing you want to do. Speak the word, and it shall not stand for God is with us. We have Emmanuel on our side. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand, this is Isaiah speaking, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say you not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Now the word confederacy means conspiracy or an alliance against. 
There are those today who say there is no great conspiracy. Well, God says there is a conspiracy. That one just almost blows me away when people say there is no conspiracy. There has always been a conspiracy. It started with the conspiracy Satan and the angels had against God. It started with the conspiracy against Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And there has always been Satan and his minions and all the lands of the world conspiring against Israel and conspiring one against another. How do you think there have been so many wars for world domination if people didn't get together and talk about it and make a plan to do so? Are we any different today? Aren't there still plots going on? Aren't there plots being hatched right now, today, as we speak against the troops of America in Iraq and in Afghanistan and in New Guinea and Tunisia and anywhere you want to look on earth? There are people who hate us and would like to get together with someone else and bring us down. China's friendship with us is a very, very thin veneer. The only reason they're friendly with us today at all is because we buy all their widgets. Very interesting. Neither fear you their fear, nor be afraid. There are people today within the churches of God who spend almost all their time searching out the length, the depth, and the breadth of the conspiracy against America. They spend hours and hours and hours on the Internet and looking for signs that the central bankers and the Edomites and on and on and on it goes have a conspiracy against us. There is no doubt in my mind there is a conspiracy against us. And they are true, or those reports are true, about some of those principles who are behind the conspiracy against America. And we also have those in our own government who are conspiring against America with those bankers and with those other nations to take over and destroy America. Our own leaders have said it with their own mouths. George Bush Sr. was the first one to publicly announce that there is a new world order and to imply that we would have to come under its government. Those in Washington today and those candidates who would wish to be President of the United States are both part and parcel with the New World Order, UN, EU, NATO, Masons, whatever groups will come together in this great conspiracy. There was one so-called self or leading so-called leading evangelist who some years ago stated there are no black heliocopters to use his pronunciation. 
Yet many of you, and I, have seen them. I've seen quite a few of them, from Alaska to the Carolina to Colorado to all over. Those are not here without the permission and condoning of our government. The Germans are not at Alamogordo with an airbase without the knowledge of our government. Yes, dear Hilda, there is a conspiracy. But we're not to fear it. Now, why do these people look for everything that might be going on? Every new report of a chip that can be implanted. Man, it's big news. Oh, we should watch these things. Certainly we should watch them. And I spend a minimal amount of time watching them, and I don't spend a great deal of time in sermons and Bible studies and anything else discussing them. I discuss them a little here and there. We certainly should be apprised and aware of what is coming. But at the same time, the fact that people study it hour after hour, day after day, month after month, must show that they have a certain fear of it. Else, why would you bother? We're not to fear it. We should go to the pools of Shiloh. We should not go to anyone else, anywhere else, to seek comfort, guidance, protection, and direction. All we need is God. So, don't worry about the conspiracy. Follow it to some degree. But certainly don't make a religion of it. And some people absolutely make a religion of it. That's all they want to talk about, all they want to study, all they want to be concerned about. Man, there's an awful lot here that still needs studied. A lot we still don't understand. Now, this wasn't just the conspiracy back then that we were concerned about. We've already seen it brought forth at least as far as the birth of Christ. It goes even further. We'll see that. It's for today. Isn't there a conspiracy? Keep your finger here. Maybe you'll turn back to uh, Psalm 83. Psalm 83. Keep not your silence, O God. Hold not your peace. And be not still, O God. That's a prayer we could pray now. God, don't just sit there. Do something. For lo, your enemies make a tumult. We see all this coming upon us. We see the American economy about to fall. We see our enemies getting stronger. We wonder just how it will come about. The euro already is worth more than the dollar by 20-25%. For lo, your enemies make a tumult, and they that hate you have lifted up the head. We see the whole Islamic world, basically, who've lifted up the head against us. We've seen our shores breached. A time of fear and concern and worry. Something that those who contend for office today are arguing back and forth about. Are we safe? Will it happen again? Prophecies say it will. That's the answer to that. I don't see either of those men turning in the Bible and clearly reading these prophecies to show what is about to happen to our country. Well, they know what's about to happen. They know it's going to be taken by, over by the New World Order because they are palms in their hand. They have taken crafty counsel against your people. In other words, they've gotten behind closed doors and made their pacts and alliances and prepared to take over world leadership and consulted against your hidden ones. 
the church of God, in some respects, even though it is scattered now all over the world, is somewhat hidden. Now, it's not been taken to a place of safety yet, but we are certainly not on the forefront of the battle line, are we? We're still somewhat hidden somewhere back in the uh, curtains behind the stage. We haven't entered the world stage yet. And in fact, we're in a pitiful condition to go on a world stage today. A remnant has to come together to be a light against the world and a witness against it before that can happen. So in one sense, we are somewhat hidden today. Maybe buried would be uh, applicable. Anyway, our enemies have said, Come and let us cut them off from being a people, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. Have no doubt what these people have in mind. They want us absolutely, totally annihilated. And many scriptures show that a third will die of famine and pestilence, a third by the sword, a third go into captivity, and a sword be sent after them, so that only a small remnant, a tithe, 10%, is left. Physically, and of spiritual Israel, the church as well. 90% will go into tribulation. Some will repent there. Anyway, for they have consulted together with one consent. That is a conspiracy. They are conspired against you. The tabernacles of Edom, go to the book of Obadiah and see, along with Genesis 49, that it was promised that the Edomites, that is, the sons of Esau, would finally, after all those thousands of years of misery and frustration, triumph over Jacob. Will happen right at the end. Very clear in Genesis and Obadiah. And the Ishmaelites... So we have here a broadening representation of the Arabic world. Not just the Arabics, but perhaps all Islamics, because only 18% of the Islamic world is Arabic. There are many, many other peoples. There are far more uh, followers of Islam in India and in uh, Pakistan and in um, what's the country in Indonesia and other places than there are in Arabia. And they don't like us either. The Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagarenes, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Philistines were quite a few tribes. They were a major enemy back then. And he is giving a general view of many, many Gentile nations who will be confederate against us here in the end. Psalm 83 is a prophecy. The whole books, uh, the whole books all the books of the psalm. Our prophecy. Asher also is joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. Psalm 2, verse 2. The Psalms even open with this. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Why do the heathen rage and think that they can rule the entire world? That's the vain thing that they imagine today. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together, that's a conspiracy, against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, he anointed Israel and divorced her because of adultery. Now he has anointed the New Testament church, and most of the church has gone into Laodiceanism, including us, and we're repenting of it, aren't we? 
and seeing that we were naked and blind, even though we thought we had everything we needed. And now we're putting on the garments of righteousness. We are seeking oil for our lamps, so we're going out because they all slumbered and slept, even though some contend that their group is Philadelphia and everyone else is Laodicea. They all slumbered and slept. So the conspiracy is going to be against spiritual Israel as well as physical Israel. And once physical Israel is gone, as we have seen in the book of Revelation, then it will just be the few remaining of the remnant of the church against the whole wide world. Because this is going to be a fairly successful conspiracy at the end. And they will rule all the earth and everyone will bow down to the image of the beast and the beast except the few remaining faithful of God. Us against the world is the way it's going to be. But never fear. We have the waters of Siloam to look to. God in his way can quietly do as he pleases. And then at some point, he is not going to be quiet anymore, but he is going to shake the earth. Well, I'm getting ahead of the story here. Let's go back to Isaiah 8 and verse 12. A conspiracy, neither fear you their fear, nor be afraid. We have nothing to fear if we trust in Emmanuel, God with us. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, or that is, set him aside to worship. And let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. The beginning of wisdom is to fear the eternal. The beginning of wisdom is not to fear the new world order, in whatever form it may finally take. This is both an instruction and a warning. Don't look anywhere but to God. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Israel and Judah are going to be tripped up by the things of God. They will not, cannot, refuse to accept God. Just as Ahaz refused to ask a sign of God. We old Christian nation, but we will not look to him when the chips are down. We in the church tend to say we worship God, but then when we have troubles and trials and difficulties, we have extreme difficulty looking to God, we find other solutions. This is not a problem that can be solved overnight. It is a problem that has to be dealt with, and we have to build our relationship with God, draw near to Him, learn to fear Him, and learn to trust Him at the same time in all the little things and big things that come up in our lives that are seemingly big to us, although the big stuff hasn't even arrived yet. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. This is going to happen physically to the nation when we are taken. And on a spiritual level, it's already happening within the church because we see tens of thousands falling on our right and left hand 
on a spiritual level. Interesting statement next. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Physical Israel and Judah don't have a prayer. In fact, he says don't even pray for them in Jeremiah. He says, seal this all up with my disciples, those true followers of God. He brings this whole thing right down to the church. When this great conspiracy occurs, Israel and Judah will be destroyed, and the only ones who will look to God are those remaining members of his church who haven't fallen on stony ground, among rocks, among the thorns, or whatever, but have survived till the end. And I will wait upon the Lord that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. God says in many places he will turn his face from us. But then if we are faithful and true, he will turn it back in blessing. Here's another place that is mentioned. We'll see this again in Isaiah 54 and other places. I will look for him. Doesn't God say, seek and you shall find? Why do most people in the church of God today not understand what is happening to the church and why? Because they have devised in their mind an idea of what God is doing now, and they have not sought God. They have not looked for Him in all this destruction that has occurred. They have not searched the Scriptures to find out what God says about it, and that He is the one who spewed us out. He is the one. Read the book of Lamentations. Man, I don't have time to go there today. I will look for him. Those who seek him will find him in this end time. Behold, I and the children whom the Eternal has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel, from the Lord of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. That has to be talking only about the church. No one else is going to do signs and wonders from God. And in fact, this may even be an allusion to Zechariah 3, where it says Joshua and those men with him ultimately will do signs and wonders. They are men of signs and wonders at the end. And that's the context of the two witnesses. So Isaiah is saying, he and those children who were with them are a type of what is to happen at the end. And signs and wonders will be done. In Israel, from the, Mount, or from the Lord of hosts, which dwells in Mount Zion. Now, Jerusalem today, according to Revelation 11, is reckoned as Sodom and Gomorrah. It is not a righteous place. But there is a Zion somewhere where God will dwell with his people. And that is where the miracles in the end time will emanate from. And when they shall say to you, Seek to them that have familiar spirits, and to the wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek their God for the living to the dead? Will we go to satanic sources to find out what is going on? Or will we look to God? God tells us right here exactly what's going to happen. Our nation is going to be taken, and only a remnant of his true people even, his disciples, will look for him and find him. And they will do signs and wonders in the face of this worldwide conspiracy that is upon us.
No, Ronald Reagan was not a righteous king of Israel, as some in the church contend today. He looked to the wizards that peep and mutter. His wife went to seances and found answers about what to do in Israel today. The two right now vying for leadership of this nation were members of Skull and Bones. And the president himself, when asked, what does Skull and Bones consist of as a secret organization, he says, I won't tell you, it's a secret organization. <laughs> Good answer. They're all involved. Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You can go to all kinds of sources to find answers, but if you don't go according to this book, this law, and this testimony written here, and you don't find the answers here, you won't find any answers, not any true answers. And they shall pass through it, hardly be stead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. Those, of, those who seek any other answer other than the eternal God of Israel are going to be frustrated in their search for answers and they'll wind up cursing God. Scary, isn't it? And they shall look unto the earth. What is the movement today and what is the God of the New World Order? Mother Earth. Gaia. I guess that has nothing to do with gay, but a lot of them are that too. They shall look to the earth. They'll look to the earth that they worship for the answers. Not going to find them here. And behold, trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Doesn't God say the whole thing is going to culminate with the sun and the moon not giving their light and darkness? That's where it's headed. That which they worshipped will betray them. The earth that they thought was their mother will not give them any answers. Remember what Romans or what Paul said to the Romans, chapter one. They looked to the created instead of the, the creator. And yes, they also were gay. And I don't mean happy. Chapter nine. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun, named some of the tribes of Israel. These tribes were up near uh, the Sea of Galilee and beyond and north and up against the Arabian enemies. They were lightly afflicted at first in the land of Naphtali and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea. So they lived near the sea. And even today, those tribes are up in the Nordic countries along the sea. Beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has the light shined. We have another absolutely direct prophecy of Jesus Christ starting here. So this thing carries forward. Now, he did not shine as a great light. 
after he was born and walked this earth for 33 and a half years. He is going to shine as a great light, yet, after all this darkness has come over the earth, and the sun and moon do not give their light, and the earth is shaken, they're going to see then, finally, a great light. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them as the light shined, you have multiplied the nation, and my King James says, not increase the joy, that doesn't fit at all, my, my uh, margin says, you've multiplied the nation, and to him increase the joy. They joy before you according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. You're never happier than when you've planted and tilled and fertilized and kept and finally harvested and begun to eat that which you have harvested. Nor are you any happier than when you have fought a long, hard, perhaps bloody battle and finally won and... The greatest joy of soldiers is to go through on the battlefield and pick out all the gold and jewelry and diamonds and goodies that you could find off of the bodies of your vanquished foes. They took great glee in that. God says the happiness that is going to come upon the people that finally see the great light is going to be comparable to harvest and the spoil of war. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. He uses Gideon's victory here as an example. I think it's a very appropriate one, because remember, Gideon had 22,000 warriors. And God reduced it and reduced it and reduced it. He said, this, this is too many people for me to win with. How can you have too many? Well, you're not God. He finally got it down to 300 and said, now this is about the right number. Whose victory was this going to be? God's, not men's. And it's not going to be our victory when this whole thing comes to pass. It is going to be God's victory. So he invokes the story of Gideon here. Not numbers of men, but it's God who delivers. He's going to lift the rod of the oppressor as in the day of Midian... For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. Well, that's, isn't that the way it was when Gideon attacked? Well, I say attacked. Didn't they come in the dark with lamps and a trumpet? <laughs> and all those lights just scared the Assyrians half to death. And they jumped up and started hacking away and killed each other. So it came with great confusion and garments rolled in blood. It won't be like that, he says, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. God is going to send a fire upon this earth that will destroy most of mankind in the seven last plagues and some of those things which happened even before. Why? How? Next verse explains. For, or because, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, that's how he started out. But that's not how he's going to wind up. We don't keep his birthday. We keep his death as a memorial. Why is it that people still like to look to their birthday? What were you when you were born? A little squalling brat screaming and spewing at both ends. 
Yet you want to honor and remember that day? You haven't done anything except your diaper. Why not look to the end of life? God says in Ecclesiastes, the day of one's death is better than the day of his birth. By then you should have accomplished something. But Christ hadn't accomplished anything when he was born of Mary. So he tells us to memorialize his death, not his birth, even hid his birth. Maybe we need to kind of get over it and hide ours and quit celebrating it. It's becoming more and more popular in the church to do that. How did I get over there? He was born as a child who could do nothing. That's how I got there. Unto us a child is born, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. You have to be mature before you can take the government upon your shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I read this and the sounds of the Messiah start echoing through my head because it's such a powerful piece of music. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. The waters of Siloam are going to spread over all the earth. And it will be peaceful waters, not raging rivers. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. So we see that these prophecies that began in chapter 7 verse 1 aren't just for Ahaz, but they go all the way forward to the millennium. But the prophecies of the book of Isaiah go all the way forward to the millennium. The zeal of the eternal of hosts will perform this. God says, I am going to get it done. It's going to happen. The eternal sent a word into Jacob, and it has lighted upon Israel. God is going to show this light first to the Jew, or the Israelite, then to the Gentile. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, Samaria was the capital of the north ten tribes, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, These people are going to be humbled. But look at Israel today. Look at Israel today. It says the bricks are falling down, but we will build with hewn stones. They may have destroyed the twin towers, but we'll build them back bigger and stronger than they ever were. You see, bricks have mortar, and that mortar can be destroyed, and a brick wall is not nearly so strong as a hewn stone wall. So we figure no matter what happens, we are Americans, and therefore we can fix anything. If it was brick before, we'll build it back with hewn stones. If it was sycamore, which was a very small and weak tree, are cut down, we will change them into cedars. This is going to be bigger and better than ever before. We shall prevail. God bless America. We put on our bumper stickers. And isn't it interesting that the daughters of Zion that we read about back in Isaiah 3, who dress themselves up and fancy themselves up and begin to prance around and try to look higher and better and fairer than them all, are also going to be knocked down. 
that, I, that Revelation 3 applies to the church today, as is Matthew 24.1. Not one stone left upon another. And those who think that they are okay, that is, think they are Philadelphian, but know not that they are naked and blind. Don't those who call themselves Philadelphian, whatever organization they might have, have a great deal of spiritual pride and self-righteousness and think that they are better than anyone else in the church? Yes, they do. They are exclusively the Philadelphians. Our spiritual pride within the church is very akin to our physical pride as a nation of Israel. So, these principles apply to both. Aren't some of those organizations trying to build back colleges... Aren't they trying to build back, uh, well, I think of at least two who are producing schools of prophets or colleges. They're trying to build worldwide back, but even better. I'll tell you what, it ain't gonna happen. God has decreed that it will all be torn down. Not one stone left upon another. Verse 11. Therefore, because they say we are well clothed and have everything we need and have need of nothing as a nation and as a church, therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and join his enemies together, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind. These are people we read about in Psalm 83. And they shall devour Israel with open mouth. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. God is so angry at the church and at the physical nation that the Islamic world and its alliances coming at us are not where God's going to stop. He may start there, but he's not going to stop there. For the people turns not to him that smite them, neither do they seek the eternal of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush, in one day. It is going to be a very sudden fall when it comes. Head and tail, branch and rush, in one day. Well, if you get your head cut off and your tail cut off, that's pretty much most of you, isn't it? The ancient and honorable, he is the head. The prophet that teaches lies, he is the tail. The prophets that say everything's going to be okay, the ministers that preach smooth and quiet things are going to have their tails cut off. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. The ministry is being destroyed, and that is going to continue. For the leader, oh, I've read that. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, even if they do have a college for preachers, God's not going to have any joy in it. And He's not going to have any joy in our young warriors as a nation either. We're about done winning wars. We've gotten ourselves into such a mess in Iraq, they have no extraction plan. It's got a rotten tooth and they don't know how to get it out. God will have no joy in their young men, neither shall he have mercy on their fatherless and widows. The population is going to be destroyed. And even in the church, those widows 
who trusted in the leadership of the church, God will have no mercy on either. They're going into the tribulation unless they repent and seek God with their whole hearts. For everyone is an hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. All those politicians in the physical nation who stand up and say, I am the answer, is a hypocrite and has a lot of skeletons in the closet. And a lot of people who give lip service today in the church are also hypocrites. Saying we do, but doing not. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns, and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest. And they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. In other words, our terrible sin and wickedness is just going to burn us up. Our nation is being destroyed from within. And the church was destroyed from within. Liars and hypocrites. Though the wrath of the eternal of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire, no man shall spare his brothers. It's going to be dog eat dog. No one will be sacrosanct. Doesn't it say in Matthew 25, the love of many will wax cold, and they will betray one another to the death? And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry, and he shall eat on the left hand, and they shall not be satisfied. There's not going to be enough. There's no way to be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Commentary says that the meaning of the Hebrew here is more, he'll eat the arm of his neighbor. Now that can signify taking everything your neighbor has, and when this thing gets really, really bad, it may even signify the Donner Party. We'll eat each other. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh. And they together shall be against Judah. In other words, Manasseh will chew on Ephraim, and Ephraim will chew on Manasseh, and they'll both chew on Judah. Israel will fall into absolute confusion and selfishness, and no one will take care of anyone else except himself. Dog eat dog. Everyone against everyone. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Woe to them that decree unrighteous decrees and the right grievousness which they have prescribed. People have their ideas and their answers. What about God's answer? What does God say about all this? There are still many organizations in the church of God today who think that they have a ticket to the place of safety. Even yet, they do not understand that God has been upset with all of us. All the virgins slumbered and slept. It's time to wake up and find oil. They have unrighteous viewpoints, unrighteous focuses. They don't understand that God is tearing us down in order to produce repentance. They still think that they are rich and increased with goods and are finishing Herbert Armstrong's work. No, 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 no. He finished his work. He said so. The calling stopped then. And only a few at the 11th hour are being called now in spite of millions of dollars being spent on television and booklets and so on. The fruits simply are not there. 
you'd think people would begin to wake up and realize, maybe God isn't in this. Maybe God isn't doing this. Maybe we're not Philadelphians who have all the answers after all. Maybe we should be repenting and didn't realize we were naked and blind and wretched. They prescribed their own solutions. To turn aside the needy from judgment and to take away the right from the poor of my people that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. They're still saying pray and pay. They're still saying you must give bigger offerings. You must give, give, give so I can do the work. It hasn't changed yet. Money is still the big deal. They don't care that that's widows and fatherless. They have a mission from God that they must fulfill in doing God's work, even though God isn't in it anymore. God's done calling. He's sifting. He's sorting. Many have been called. Few are now being chosen. Herbert Armstrong's work is finished. Now, we must get ourselves ready. Prepare the bride. Herbert Armstrong perceived this. It's so, why didn't people listen? He was the leader. He says, my work is finished. Now get the church ready. And all the organizations that have come up since, for the most part, have said, fully on the church, let's get the gospel preached. They didn't listen to Herbert Armstrong. They don't listen to God. So they still make the widows their prey and rob the fatherless. Send more, send more, send more. What will you do in the day of visitation and the desolation which shall come from far? And then, what are they going to do then when the financial collapse occurs? God has warned us and told us, gather yourselves, get out before it happens. Zephaniah 2. Speaking of the decree of financial destruction in Zephaniah 1. Is that what they're doing? No, they're just moving from city to city. Move from San Diego to Cincinnati, or San Diego to Charlotte, I guess, and from Pasadena to Cincinnati, and on and on. They're not reading the Scriptures. They're doing their own thing. What are you going to do when this hits? To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your glory? <laughs> and speaking on a national basis, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, where will America turn when all this comes upon her? We've been the top dog, haven't we? What little bow wow are we going to turn to for help now? Without me, they shall bow down unto the prisoners, and they shall fall unto the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. O Assyrian, the rod of my anger, and the staff in their hand is my indignation. He's going to send the Islamic world on us, and his hand will be stretched out still. Then he's going to send the Assyrian. I will send him against a hypocritical nation. Perhaps Tkach has represented an Assyrian in some respects who came down on the world and brought it into Babylon. Those two unclean birds in Zechariah 5 that set it on its base in Babylon, right back into the pagan system. So the type goes through with both the church and the nation all the way. 
church has been hypocritical too, giving lip service but not obeying from the heart. And against the people of my wrath, that is Israel, will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Just like wet manure in a barnyard, God is going to cause Israel to be trodden down. Howbeit, he means not so, neither does his heart, does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. Well, the average German doesn't realize, if that is who represents Assyria, that that's the way they are. Nor do their leaders. Nor do these people who are running the New World Order and will place it upon the world, the beast and the false prophet. You know what they think? They think this world has become so overpopulated and so polluted and so wretched that its population needs to be knocked down by 90% and that they then have the wisdom, the understanding, the scientific know-how and industrial power through Walmart, the world store, and through Catholicism, the world religion, and whatever else they may use to make a peaceful place here. That's what they think in their heart. They think the governments of this world are doing such a lousy job that we can do better. And Satan feeds this vanity and pride that resides within their minds and hearts. They don't have the worst interests of the world in mind. They think they have the best interests of the world, the earth, and its inhabitants in mind. They feel that it is necessary to destroy 90% who are living mostly in wretchedness and poverty in order that the 10% might survive and live in peace and prosperity with them as the rulers. That's how they think. They don't know it is in their heart to cut off nations, not a few. But God uses this to his advantage to punish us. For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? We're, we're wonderful leaders. We know how to rule the world. For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Calno as Carcamish? Is not Hamath as Arpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? Some of these were cities along the Euphrates and Tigris rivers that they had annihilated and destroyed. And he says, isn't one just like another? We know what we're doing. We know how to war. As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols in whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria. They call us a pagan nation. Well, they're right. Shall I not, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? At this point, they will have already destroyed Israel, the nations of Israel, America, Britain, and all Western Europe and Australia, South, South Africa, and so on. And they'll go after the Jews as well. They'll get all Israel, they think. Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Eternal has performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that is, all of Judea, all the leaders, and again upon the church, because the church is typified by Zion and Jerusalem in Hebrews 12, 22, and 23. It applies both ways, because the church is basically going to be destroyed as well. I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. Once, once God's purpose in punishing Israel is done, both the church and the nation, then he will turn against the Assyrian. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom. 
For I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people. He's destroyed and taken away all the borders. Isn't that what the New World Order plans to do? Take away the sovereignty of each nation and amalgamate us as one nation under them. Divided up into ten different geographical areas with governors over them. I was really smart. I took away these geographical boundaries and made the whole world sovereign, or us sovereign over the whole world. And have robbed their treasures. You see, when they undercut the dollar and caused the financial crash of the dollar, and probably the upswing of the euro, your dollar will be absolutely worthless. You cannot pay your mortgage with it, or your car payment, or your credit card bill, or anything else. And since we are mortgaged to the hilt, and they are working hard at it right now, how many credit card offers do you get, no matter how good or how bad your credit is? They come in the mail, one after another after another. You get these calls. We have you pre-approved. They're trying to get us as absolutely deep in debt as they possibly can. And then when they pull the rug out from under us and make the dollar worthless, they say, you can't pay this with dollars. They're worthless. How can I pay? You can't. Well, if you'll take this chip, you can buy and sell. But with America, now that's for the rest of the world, but with America, it's going to be taken captive. They don't care about us. They hate us. We'll be taken captive. Most of us killed. The rest taken captive. And what will they do? They'll simply repossess our nation, repossess our homes, our cars, our infrastructure. Because we can't pay the mortgage. They can legally come in and take over America because we are $63 trillion in debt and growing. It's just a simple repo. But instead of just coming in and taking your car, they'll shoot you and then take your car. They just take it one step further than the banks do. So I put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. Verse 14, And my hand is found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one that gathers eggs that are left. Have I gathered all the earth, brought all the earth under me. And there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peep. It's like a, she said, I'm like a big chicken that has called all the chicks home. And they've all come without murmur. Isn't that the way it's going to happen? Isn't that the way the book of Revelation describes it? They'll offer... This you can buy and sell if you accept the beast and the false prophet. And everyone's going to come a-running like a bunch of little chicks. They won't even peep. They'll just come. Shall the axe boast itself against him that hews therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shakes it? As if the rod should shake itself against him that lifted up? Or as if the staff should lift up itself as it were no wood? Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning fire like the burning of a fire, and the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body, and they shall be as when a, a standard bearer faints, when he's holding the flag and he faints and falls over." And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may write them. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him or lean upon him that smote him. 
but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So when the Assyrian gets done, God is going to wipe him out. And Israel, that remains, that tithe, that 10%, will then lean upon God. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Then they're going to see God as a mighty God, not just a quiet pool. The Assyrian came with might and power. And then the mighty God wipes out the Assyrian. And those Israelites who are left are going to say, man, that's impressive. And they're going to start coming to God, finally. But that's what it's going to take. Sorry, folks, that's what it's going to take. And that's what it's going to take for 90% of the church who go into the tribulation to begin to wake up. And some will. But many will die as a result. For though the, your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. Ten percent. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. God's going to save a righteous tithe for himself. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of all the land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, whoever those may be. Be not afraid of the Assyrian. In fact, he tells those who go out of Babylon into the field, who will be protected ultimately in Micah 4 and 5, that they go out against the Assyrian. The two witnesses and those who are associated with them will go out against the Assyrian, against the beast and the false prophet, and cannot be destroyed until they have finished the witness against this world. Of course, then they are, and then they are subsequently resurrected. Be not afraid of the Assyrian, you who dwell in Zion. He shall smite you with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against you after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and my anger in their destruction. They'll come up against you, but they won't succeed. They will be destroyed. Why fear the conspiracy? Fear God. Fear God. The conspiracy can't touch you if you fear God. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his rod was upon the sea, as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. He says, what Gideon did and what Moses did is going to be repeated. And Jeremiah 31 says it's going to be such that it will make us forget the Red Sea, which is remembered throughout the Bible. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off your shoulder and his yoke from off your neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. The anointing of Jesus Christ and the two anointed ones whom he sends to throw it in the face of this entire world. He has come to Aath, he has passed to Migron, at Michmash he has laid up his carriages or his war materials. They are gone over the passage, they have taken up their lodging at Geba. Ramah is afraid, Gibeah of Saul is fled. Lift up your voice, O daughter of Galim, cause it to be heard in, unto Laish, O poor Anatoth. All the little villages and so on of our land are going to be freed. Madmina is removed. The inhabitants of Gibeam gather themselves to flee. As yet shall he remain at Nob that day. He shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror, 
and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. The Assyrian, the beast, is going to say, there is none like me in all the earth. I will rule the world with my new world order. And God will laugh and lop his head off like you lop a tree's head off. The haughty shall be humbled, and he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. God is going to take a hand. Well, that's a good place to stop today. And Isaiah 11 will pick up tomorrow, God willing, which offers such a great hope of what God will do when this is all done.